the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Situation Report today. Glad to have you joining me. This is the show where we do our very best to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stahlnicker, and I have a guest on today that um, really is very timely. And we talk about this a little bit in the interview But with so much going on in our world, and particularly right now on the national political scene, we're coming out of midterms, and it's very obvious, it's very apparent that folks in our country, different areas of our country, different states in our country are not on the same page. I think at one time we believed that most people were generally on the same page in regards to many of the big issues, and that does not seem to be the case. Um, Different people, different regions, different states view the world very differently. And yet we have a federal government that is supposed to be representative really determining what happens in states that view the world differently. How do we deal with that? What do we do about that? What's the future of that? Where does that end up? How do we understand this and uh, so many other issues related to decentralization, states' rights versus the federal government? How do we deal with this? My guest today uh, has written on this, speaks on this. Ryan McMakin is the senior editor at the Mises Institute. He's an economic analyst, podcast host, author. Today we're going to be talking about his book, Breaking Away, The Case for Secession, Radical Decentralization, and Small Polities. Very uh, grateful that he would come on today. And again, a very timely conversation with my guest, Ryan McMakin. Before we jump into that, though, um, I would imagine if you've been to the grocery store recently, you've noticed that things are more expensive. Gas is more expensive. It doesn't matter where you live in this country. Things are more expensive. The economy, our economic future is uncertain. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we can do to protect our financial future for our families, for our children? What can we do personally? Uh, One of the things I would recommend is at least considering adding gold and silver into your IRA, your investment accounts. Take a look, figure out how to do that, and see if that is the right fit for you. The place that you can start is with Lear Capital. Call Lear Capital, and you can get their free precious metals investor guide. You can also ask them about their Lear Advantage IRA that lets you transfer or roll over your old 401k or IRA into a gold and silver tax advantage IRA. Plus, Lear is offering right now Crazy shipping, uh, free shipping, and up to $15,000 in bonus gold or silver with a qualified purchase. This is something you at least need (laughs) to take a look at. You can call for details, 800-489-6450. Lear Capital is the most rated precious metals company on consumer affairs with a near-perfect rating on Trustpilot. Call them at 800-489-6450. That is 800-489-6450. Calling that number, you will get your... Your free kit and there 
You will learn how gold has performed during periods of inflation, government debt, interest rate hikes, economic crashes, even wars, and how in all of those gold has been the financial bedrock asset in portfolios. Uh, One of the things I love about Lear Capital is that they are an American-owned company, proud to do business with Americans that share conservative values. Write this number down, 800-489-6450. Call them today, or if you don't want to call, you can click the link below in the show description and the show notes. Check them out. You will do yourself a great service by at least investigating Lear and what they have to offer. Ryan, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. This is a conversation that probably has a lot of legs right now. A lot of people interested in in, uh, what you've written on and what you're talking about. But thanks for joining us and uh, breaking this down for us. Thanks. It's great to be with you today. So you have, uh, you've written quite a bit. um, But when we scheduled this interview, uh, whenever it was, um, I, I asked you to come on to talk about uh, your book, Breaking Away, The Case for Secession, Radical Decentralization, and Small Polities. And uh, that was on the other side of the midterms when maybe we were more hopeful that the world could come together, that certainly our country could come together. Um, but if anything, and I, I'm not not hopeful, but we have definitely seen that we live in a country that is more and more polarized. People in different parts of the country certainly do not see the world the same way. Um, and so this makes this conversation so much more interesting. Um, I, I'd love to jump into that, but let's start, if we can, with a little bit of your background and, and kind of what led you to even thinking this way. Well, I've been uh, associated with uh, the Mises Institute for a long time, Yeah. Um, not as an employee, but just someone who wrote columns for them and presented some research at their uh, conferences and such. And so I've been reading Murray Rothbard a long time. Mm. And he used a phrase in some of his essays a long time ago that was radical decentralization was a phrase okay. he used. Yeah. Yeah. And part of the reason was is that there are just so many different issues that come out of the political process that so many different people think so differently about that it just doesn't make sense to have one small group of people impose some sort of uniform mm. legal environment on everybody else. And uh, we can see this all the time, right? Pretty much everyone agrees that the world should not be one single country. It's recognized that people in different parts of the world have different ways of doing things, and it would be nuts to try and rule uh, Zimbabwe from Moscow or Central America from Beijing. People, People see that. That doesn't seem to make much sense. And Rothbard's point, which I agreed with, is that well, there's no reason why that argument should only apply across 10,000 miles to places only where it's on a different continent and people speak different languages. We can find that this is the case at much more local levels as well. So the idea that people in Cheyenne, Wyoming should be ruled from Washington, D.C. and told what they can have in their textbooks at school or how people are allowed to get home loans or what sort of uh, plants people are allowed to smoke, that this doesn't make any more sense than having people in Beijing tell people in El Salvador what to do. And so we can look then at just the long history of decentralization, and that's the norm in the world is decentralization. And in fact, has becoming more decentralized in recent decades with 
the number of countries in the world almost tripling since 1945. As these old empires broke up, as countries broke up into smaller pieces, as the Soviet Union went away and broke up into 15 pieces, this is something that clearly people recognize the value of it. And so it's just been a long block, a mental block for Americans in this idea that national unity is some extremely important thing. Uh, but it's becoming more and more apparent that uh, some sort of unified rule from one place doesn't really work in America either. Yeah. The um, pushback on that, I would imagine, is the fact that our founders decided we would have a representative government. So uh, we don't truly have – it's not Moscow – you know, ruling Zimbabwe or making decisions for Zimbabwe. It is we elect people that we send to Washington that are supposed to represent our interests. Now, they don't do it well. I mean, we could argue that as well. But that's the idea of a constitutional republic versus a true democracy, correct? Um, we have the Electoral College. So we have some things in place that are supposed to, I think, accomplish what you're talking about without breaking the country into pieces. Um is it that that has failed or was that never going to work? How do you view these these kind of things that have been put in place that constitutionally we hang on to to represent places like Wisconsin to, you know, D.C.? And I, I agree with you, by the way, that it, it's crazy. We were just talking uh, before the, sh the show that there are, you know, places like Michigan. When you look at a state like Michigan and you look at the Upper Peninsula, uh, that's a different state, <laughs> right? But it's it's not really and it's governed by people in Detroit and those people don't represent their interests, and we could see that more nationally. How, how do you look at, at some of those things? Federalism is supposed to fix this problem, but it hasn't. Well, I think federalism can work on a smaller scale. Um, Switzerland is one such example, right, where everything's on a much smaller scale. The whole country has about 9 million people, uh, and it has more than 30, their equivalent of states, called cantons, yeah. right? Um, and the size of those is about 1 million people uh, on the high end. The average is even less than that. And so if you look then at the, at the size of some American states, they're just huge, right? California with 39 million people, uh, but even a medium-sized state, uh, Illinois with, I believe, about 11 million people, Florida right. with 24 million and so on. Everything's on a just much grander scale. So for something that obviously works very well at a more limited scale of federalism, such as in the Swiss example, uh, doesn't really work across something as huge as the United States. And one example is just how completely off track the U.S. representative system has gotten from what was imagined in the late sure, 18th century. Yeah. Right? They imagined about 50,000 people would be represented by each member of Congress. Where are we now? We're at about 500,000 people. Mm -hmm. So the idea that one person sitting in Congress can represent the interests of half a million people within that district is really quite silly and absurd, and few other countries even attempt it. If you look at the number of people that are represented by one legislator in most European countries, it's, it's tiny fractions of that 500,000. It's a few thousand people. And with most state legislatures... It's, say, five, six, seven, maybe 10 or 15,000 people per state legislator. But for some reason, they decided that some rich guy in Congress who you've <laughs> never met, lives yeah. nowhere near you, lives yeah. in a gated community somewhere, yeah. he's, a, he's an Ivy League grad uh, and an attorney, that somehow he has your interests 
at heart. And so, first of all, the, the current method of representation used in the United States has no resemblance to as representation was imagined uh, in the United States at the time of the founders. And then if you bring that up, though, you say, well, if you had the sort of representation they imagined, right. you would need thousands of members right. of Congress. And then what do they say? Well, you can't do that. That's too many people in the legislature. All they're really saying then is that the United States is too large to have a functioning legislature that provides real representation. So if you want real representation in a matter imagined by uh, James Madison, you need a smaller country. That's just all mm. there is to it if you're going to pretend that that sort of representation is taking place. So uh, and then on the, just the issue of the Constitution in general, it failed in 1861. So the idea that the United States is still the same country based on the same constitutional principles just is is untrue and this isn't like an interpretation of who was right in the civil war or anything right just the fact that there was a civil war the fact that half the country wanted to leave and the fact that the other half had to conquer it militarily hmm. in order to hold the country together that's just a fact that the constitution failed because the premise of the constitution is that it wouldn't require a war of conquest to hold half the country together at gunpoint. But that's what occurred after 1861. So Madison was wrong. His, his model failed in 1861. It didn't work. It led to a huge bloody war. So uh, these guys, they were wrong about the size of the country. And it didn't work the way they wanted it to. It led to a lot of bloodshed. So we need to take that into account. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So when you talk about secession... Uh, maybe just define that, describe that. What does that look like from your perspective? Well, it can mean lots of different things. You can have de jure or de facto secession, right? So you can have cases where uh, you have part of the country that's essentially self-governing. And whether it wants to call itself a separate country or not is kind of irrelevant. What matters is that it's it's able to exercise some form of self-governance. Um, De jure, of course, would be, yeah, we, we, we broke off, we founded a new country, we got uh, our own representatives uh, uh, at other embassies and that sort of thing. You can do both. I mean, there's a lot of gray area in between there. Just how necessary is it to completely break off and have a completely separate uh, state status? Um, that's not necessarily what has to happen. In every case. But the important thing to remember about secession is just another type of decentralization, right? Is that the world is 
is based on secession, right? Most of the countries in the world today exist because they had seceded from some other country, the United States included, of course, as well as most countries in Eastern Europe. And so when you think of it in those terms, it's just a type of decentralization. It's just perhaps a more radical type. But there are different types of secession that exist, right? You can look at, say, the, the close bonds that still exist between Commonwealth countries in the United Kingdom and, and that in the 19th century, and, and really even up until the 1930s, those countries were self-governing even though they had um, really a head of state of course, that was the monarch in the UK, right. and even they deferred in many cases to foreign policy uh, coming out of London in a lot of those cases. But few would argue that those places were not essentially independent countries at that point. Um, so that's one example of how uh, this idea of secession necessarily has to be just complete and total division and breaking off and having totally separate state status. I would argue in many cases that would be the case. Um, but not necessarily. I mean, the United States is so far from that. You could just yeah. have a United States where you started to have uh, a case where each country just exercised the level of independence that EU member states have. And the EU is actually superior to the U.S. in terms of decentralization in the case of, for example, each welfare state is totally separate in the EU. So whether you get welfare or whatever, that, that depends on London. It doesn't depend on somebody making that decision in Brussels. Right. There is still a legal method to withdraw from the EU. Uh, militaries, uh, military institutions are still controlled at the, the uh, level of the member state. Uh, and so those are all important things to take into account. You, if you just got to that situation where you had that in the U.S., where they all but, they all, but all these U.S. states were functionally independent in many ways, but... Uh, they agreed, okay, we're going to have a defense union, right? A NATO mm. of North America only of sorts. Sure. Uh, we're going to have a, um, a customs union where there's no uh, tariffs on trade between the states, all of that sort of thing. That would still be recognizably something that we would call the United States, but it would be self-governing member states. Right. And, of course, a lot of people in Washington would never want to see that happen. <laughs> Correct. But that would not require the United States to actually break up in the way that most people think you're talking about when you talk about secession. If you can't decide what to give this holiday season, try giving the gift of comfort, convenience, and quality. I'm talking about Undertack, quite possibly the most comfortable pair of men's boxers ever created. These aren't normal boxers. These have literally been tested by special forces in places we aren't authorized to talk about. But that's not all. Undertack is made with modal. Think of it like cotton on steroids. It's 50% more moisture wicking, naturally antimicrobial, and it's way softer. They come with a sturdy yet comfortable extra wide waistband, and the fly design is brilliantly straightforward. Undertack is durable, ultra light, fade resistant, and shrink resistant. Here's the best part. They're almost 30% less than the competition. Go pick up a drawer full today. Undertack.com. That's Undertack.com. 20% off site-wide with the offer code SITREP20. Sit rep to zero. Satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. By the way, Undertack donates a portion of its profits to veteran-run organizations that are actively fighting human trafficking, which we love. Undertack.com. That's Undertack.com. Offer code SITREP20. You all have helped build MyPillow into the incredible company it is today. Now, Mike Lindell, inventor and CEO of MyPillow, wants to give back to our listeners. 
Right now, MyPillow is offering exclusive offers on their bed sheets, their six-piece towel set, and even offering an extended 60-day money-back guarantee. Orders placed now through December 25th will have an extended money-back guarantee through March 1st. The bed sheets are marked down as low as $29.98, and believe me when I say you will get a great night's sleep in these. Their six-piece towel set is made with USA cotton, comes with two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths, typically retailed at $89.98, and is now just $39.98 with the promo code. There is a limited supply, so be sure to order now. Call 1-800-870-0283. Use the promo code SITREP, or go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and use promo code SITREP. And it seems like a lot of this conversation is, you know, back to what you talked about in the Civil War. It's about individual states' rights. States should be able to govern themselves. And if the federal government is functioning the way that it was intended to function, and I, I, I believe that Abraham Lincoln was a sincere man. I'm, there's so much to learn from him. Um, however, I believe that many of the problems we're dealing with today, particularly as it relates to the federal government, are because of what <laughs> happened during the Civil War and decisions that were made by him. Um, the federal government should defend the United States, should do some basic things, but really it is the states that should govern themselves. If we could get back to a place where that was happening, where states' rights were recognized, and maybe we're moving that way a little bit now, um, is that an answer or am I just completely missing it? Do we have to form separate countries or is there an in-between that answers the same question? Well, sure. You could have lots of different in-betweens, right? You could continue. You don't necessarily have to have each state have its own separate sovereign state, right? In the sense of what we think of as a sovereign state today, France, yeah. South Africa, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, they could be very much within a limited union that has very specific purposes. If you think about it, most everything that the federal government has, there's no reason why welfare should be done at the level of the federal right. government. Correct. Right. Correct. You just look at even America's poorest states, say West Virginia, Mississippi, right, still have GDP per capita and, and GDP sizes more than sufficient to produce a welfare state on the level of uh, many European countries. Right. So so just the we can argue over whether welfare states are good or not. But the argument that you can't break up the U.S. because there would then be no safety net. That just doesn't make sense. It's obviously disprovable. Mm -hmm. Right. Lots of poorer places than anywhere in America have functioning welfare states. So that's just that's just irrelevant. There's no reason why the federal government needs to do that, as well as obviously road construction, uh, regulation of local business, OSHA, the EPA. Uh, law enforcement as well. There's uh, the FBI. I mean, aside from just being an unconstitutional agency that has no authorization right. under the Bill of Rights, it, uh, it, it it's unnecessary. You, Interpol has uh, is functions perfectly well in terms of sharing information. The FBI just imposes this extra layer of federal law on states. And it's just simply unnecessary. The FBI should be abolished with it. Uh, so all of these functions should be decentralized. The only argument that I could even see making any sense at all is the idea that bigness matters in terms of geopolitics. Right. And you don't need a unitary national government to do that, right? You don't need uh, businesses subject to federal laws over how they hire or fire people or how welfare is conducted in order to address geopolitical issues. Uh, 
And even then, it's it's generally overstated, at least in North America, right? The uh, the fact that that you would then have maybe two or three or four or five sovereign states in North America where a unified United States used to be, there's no reason to assume these countries would suddenly start fighting each other or welcoming China to invade one <laughs> right, to sure. to upset sure. the balance of power, right? Why would a bunch of countries that have a very common cultural and linguistic history suddenly start fighting each other there's no examples of that happening for any extended period of time when they when there are wars there's civil wars when they're fighting over one country uh claiming that half the country can't leave right there's a reason canada and the united states haven't been at war since 1815 there's just no reason for it to happen the united states and the uk haven't been at war since 1815 and these are countries that have overlapping interests there, you could argue that they would benefit from coming to blows in some cases, but that never happened, especially during the 19th century, where there was a lot more tension yeah. in those cases. But there's too many cultural bonds there, so it just never happened. So, yeah, this idea that, well, the U United States would be in an intolerable state of anarchy if you started letting pieces of it break off. Well, uh, that happened after 1776, a peace of the British Empire broke off, didn't lead to endless anarchy in North America. The United States didn't wasn't at war constantly with Canada. So nevertheless, you could argue that, yeah, sure, okay, what you need is some sort of defense union where all these countries agree that if somebody invades Florida, that people in the United States of Rocky Mountain region would intervene uh, to ensure that some foreign power doesn't get a foothold in North America, that sort of thing. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that uh, that there needs to be some final say on what happens in uh, the Rocky Mountain region, according to the likings of what people want to happen in right. the southeastern uh, part of North America. There's just there's no reason for that. You don't even have to have ma mandatory tax collection or anything like that. We can find I mean, the EU is evidence right there that member states of a larger union, they voluntarily pay in money to be members of this union. So. Uh, no evidence there at all. The only time that bigness matters is on some issues of geopolitics. But when you have a really wealthy country like the United States, even pieces of it are would continue to be the among the wealthiest, most militarily well-equipped well places in the world and wouldn't really face real threats from anybody right. else. Is this a conversation of um, – I don't know if this is even a phrase, but political philosophy that – you can line this out and you have 20 chapters in your book. You break this out. Um, you make a strong case. Again, to me, a lot of what you're talking about sounds like what perhaps the founders envisioned, even if it, it did not work the way they envisioned it. Um, I'm a big fan of local government. I'm a big fan of states' rights. I'm a big fan of the federal government not bothering me. I like, all, I like everything you're saying. But is it possible or is this a, an exercise that we go through – um, simply as a way to say there is a better way to do it, but we could never get there. How would we possibly get there, I guess, is, is kind of my question. Well, of course, never is a long time in politics. Never is a right? long time. Even 50 years is a very long time in yeah. politics. Just look at a map from 50 years ago of the, of the globe, very sure. different. Sure. And 100 years ago, unrecognizable, right, in terms of uh, national boundaries. So, uh, yeah, what do we mean by never? Well, I would, I would suggest that, yeah, this year it's unlikely that, uh, mm. that most of the country will agree that uh, it's better to go separate ways. 
Um, but you put some economic crises in there. You put uh, another 10 years in there where you start to get real people who are developing different laws at the state level significantly, uh, where you start to get a larger and larger cultural divide. And we're seeing that much more than we did 30, 40 years ago, where state governments are much more interested in developing a very different legal and cultural environment within their states than in the neighboring states. And you used to hear 30 years ago, oh, I'm going to move out of California because the taxes are high and so yeah. on. But that was pretty rare. You didn't hear, right, you didn't know right. many people that were moving out of one state to go to another <laughs> yeah. state for political reasons. Right. You hear, I don't know what percentage of the population is still small, would be my guess. But it's certainly increasing in terms of people who think, well, I'm just not going to stay here because uh, of issues related to just culture, COVID, taxes, abortion, education, um, the whole like drag queen at your local yeah. library thing. Yeah. That could, yeah. These are like yeah. daily things that concern a lot of people. Yeah. And I think they see that moving actually really addresses those issues in many cases. And that seems to be much more common now than it used to be. So give 10 or 20 years of that happening where people start to self-separate more and more. Um, but I think also a big factor will be once the federal government uh, starts having trouble paying the bills, starts dealing with starts having trouble dealing with debt, starts talking about seriously cutting federal spending on things, um, then you're going to start to see states really put themselves forward as hey, we can fill that gap that the federal government says it can right. no longer do. We, what purpose does the federal government serve anymore? They don't, they don't uh, offer us wealth and advantages the way they used to. Rather, they just offer us limitations and control. And so there's going to have to be a significant economic element there, I think, where it's going to have to be that the federal government is no longer able to buy people off as much yep. as it can now. Um, and to instill fear in people over things like Social Security, where, hey, if you leave the U.S., you're not going to get mm -hmm. all that Social Security money you paid in. Now, of course, a lot of that's based on people who uh, absurdly believe that the money they pay into Social Security <laughs> is like in a trust fund somewhere. Right. And they it's still going to be there. Yeah, sure. Right. I, it's just a regular welfare program. So yeah. if you're on Social Security, you're just on a welfare program. You're just getting money transferred to you from a current worker. That's all. And there's no reason why that can't, can't continue then sure, if your state sure. breaks off. You'll just be in a welfare program under a different government. That's all. And so people are going to need to come around to like understanding that sort of thing. But those sorts of things have to accelerate significantly with real – real changes in the economic status quo as real as well as continuing cultural divides, which I think are already well on their way, but haven't reached that critical point yet. The federal government has the big stick of the Department of Defense and the military, um, which states would have their National Guard units and, you know, whatever they have, uh, but no, no ability to defend themselves against the, the military. So what is the legal process to making this happen? If we get to the point where it's gotten so bad, everything that you just described happens, and states say, all right, we need to, we need to change this. We need to go our own way. Florida <laughs> says, yeah, we're, we're done. We, we have no reason to be a part of this anymore, um, or maybe a coalition of states or however that would shake out. What, what's the legal process to make this happen? 
I don't think there really is one outside of unless uh, a large number of states called a constitutional convention. I mean, that's the that's the legal process, right? Where I what is it? The Article Five Convention mm-hmm. that people talk about, where you need a certain number of states together and they can call right. a constitutional convention. Then you could rewrite it, I suppose, to create a legal process. Sure. Short sure. of rewriting the Constitution, though, there is no legal process. Uh, because of Supreme Court rulings on the matter. Uh, so, and Supreme Court rulings have essentially the effect of a constitutional yep. amendment. Correct. And the court ruled after the Civil War that no, states aren't allowed to leave anymore, even though that might have been the interpretation under the 10th Amendment prior to that time. So it's pretty well established that it would have to be an extra legal process. But of course, that's almost always the way it is when uh, states break up. So, uh, it's, of course, inevitable that a country the size of the U.S. would break up into smaller pieces. The question is when, because that happens just historically. It happens all the time right. uh, over the span of centuries. Uh, so there's no reason why it wouldn't happen here. Uh, the question is how long will that take and then what would the process be? But it would be extra legal the way the Soviet Union broke up, right, is there was – uh, nothing really in the Soviet constitution that uh, made it easy for, say, Lithuania to break off and form their own country or for the Ukrainians to do that. But what they ended up doing was, uh, especially in the Baltics, was they just held their own referenda. And they said, hey, we voted on leaving the Soviet Union. We decided to do that. Now uh, you're going to have to roll in tanks to conquer us to make mm-hmm. that not happen. And the Soviet Union, being in a weakened economic state, uh, elected not to do that yeah. and didn't have either the political will at the local level or the willingness even among the leaders to get embroiled in another war and deal with the, the fallout from that. And I question, even though many people say, yes, you should never break the U.S. up, I wonder how many people would be willing to die uh, in the United States to keep that from happening. There are some recent polls showing that about 50% say, nope, you should not break up the United States, but that only 7% say that they're willing to fight a war to prevent it from happening. And so that's the real question then. It's yeah. not whether there's national buy-in to it, but whether there's national buy-in to people sending their sons and daughters to go shoot up a neighboring right. state, right. where you may have cousins and yeah. friends and neighbors. Yeah in order to prevent a division from happening. But of course, we have examples of that not happening, right? With the Soviet Union's case, it was essentially bloodless. Um, The Slovenia broke off. That was an eight-day war when it broke off from uh, Yugoslavia uh, with about 100 casualties. Uh, And of course, the the dismemberment of the old empires, the, the British and French empires uh, around the world, that was done without additional... Uh, wars between the mother country and the, the the secessionist factions, and so we just look at that and we can see that yeah, there's lo- there's numerous examples of how this occurred. Just the question is, have people reached the point where they're they're too exhausted or not willing to do anything about it? And so that's why I say you would need to have a decline in um, uh, fiscal and financial strength at the federal level because I think it's really only at that at that point that people kind of just lose interest in fighting more wars or in uh, uh, fighting the sort of political battles that would be necessary to, to keep the country unified. It's interesting to hear you you break this down. We think about um, – it could be anything. It could be a country. It could be a business. It could be you know any uh, organization. Typically has a life cycle. 
there is birth, there is growth, maybe expansion, eventually death. That's just how it works. And civilizations historically have followed that same same cycle. And a lot of people, particularly right now, it seems, are talking about the United States being kind of this death cycle. We're on the backside of that. We're coming to the place where, you know, our greatness, that that star is not shining as bright. And as I'm hearing you talk, one of the solutions perhaps to the United States continuing to have the influence that it has and maintaining, you know, the the lighthouse of freedom that we have traditionally been able to shine on the rest of the world and the influence that we've had um, could be what you're talking about. It could be this. This could be the next step in the life cycle that allows Americans to continue to enjoy freedom, continue to be who we are as Americans, um, but just not under the structure that we're currently living. And, and that's a man, that's a really interesting view of what's happening. It doesn't have to be, as you mentioned, a shooting war. <laughs> it can just be we're going to restructure. And there's a, this is the time to do that. Well, that was Thomas Jefferson's vision um, in in a war to uh, in a, a letter to Joseph Priestley. Um, he had noted how after he did the um, the Louisiana Purchase, that uh, he was like, well, you know, I don't know if those if those parts of the country are going to stay united with the eastern part forever. He's like, the day may come that the people who settle those lands may want to to break off and and do their own thing, and and I only wish them the best. And, you know, it, because Americans will always be kind of this cultural entity that will work together and do good things. But he had confidence that other countries could be formed out of the Louisiana Purchase, the current U.S. The fact that it might break up into discrete political entities just really didn't bother him at all. Um, because being a good classical liberal, he saw that there were big, important bonds in terms of trade and culture and language uh, and uh, just mutual interests worldwide that would keep these countries united. And uh, his vision was probably much, much, much more so on the right track. Yeah. Um, man, there's, there's an awful lot here. I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I, I think I understand it, and I see that this could happen at some point in the future. So <laughs> what I, as a parent... Um, think about is how would my kids navigate whatever happens at the federal level that would begin the process of some of these events taking place? How do they navigate that? And certainly history is not being taught in schools as it once was. Um, I take a personal interest in that with my own children. But um, how do we prepare the next generation or whatever, the generation that's right behind us, your book breaks this down. It not only makes a case for it, but gives historical context for it. Very important, very significant. Uh, what other resources would you point people to to begin thinking about this in the right way, in a way that can help navigate whatever may happen in the future? Well, of course, we've done all sorts of articles, not even outside our book uh, at the Mises Institute, just yep. on generally on issues of decentralization. Um, which some have, some have a lot to do with secession, some not. But one of the most important issues is the issue of um, monetary policy, fiscal policy, uh, and just unified federal policy in general. So much of federal legitimacy comes out of the fact that it can print money and paper over all of the, the major fiscal problems that it has at any given time. So if you think about it right uh, it was the ability to print money that basically financed the lockdowns and enabled Washington politicians to say, 
everyone should just stay in their homes and we'll yeah. just we'll just give you a big check then. Right. right. Now of course that check was based on nothing but printed money, completely invented <laughs> right. out of nothing, right? Because right. they weren't they weren't collecting taxes because people weren't supposed to work. And so the issue of this huge monetary block uh, run by the central bank that allows through the inflation tax the central government uh, to really conceal a lot of its major problems and to continue buying off states, foreign enemies, all sorts of other groups that might be a problem for Washington's legitimacy, that's something that's just going to have to be addressed. Um, yeah. Unless, of course, it just all implodes, but that would be a bad thing. So you, yeah, right, you want to avoid right. that if yeah. you can. So the issue of the money is a big problem, and you need to really look at ways of, of having sound money reigning in the central bank, doing something to limit the federal government's just ability to just print up whatever resources it needs in order to pay off state A or B to ensure – that, uh, okay, we'll bail them out. They have like some yeah. sort of major problem. We'll just give them a trillion dollars and that'll make sure they'll never leave America because they'll be addicted to Washington's money. Mm -hmm. So that's – and then the other issue is you got to start reining in the amount of money that goes to Washington. Uh, it, it amazes me that many Americans complain more about their state taxes and local huh, taxes than they right. do about their federal taxes. Right. But if you just look at the numbers, Americans pay way more money to the federal government than they pay to their states and locals. Right. So people need to think in terms of really limiting the resources that are going to the federal government out of their states. Their states wouldn't need federal money if they weren't shipping so many dollars out of the local citizenry, giving it to Washington, and then begging for some of it back. <laughs> right. And so that's another big issue, too. And then just, just thinking in terms of ignoring federal laws a lot of the time. I mean, the 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 marijuana activists they stumbled upon a working philosophy which is okay we're just going to pass our own laws and then it's going to it's going to be on the federal government to bother enforcing them we're not going to cooperate we're not going to go along with it we're not going to take mm -hmm. orders from the feds maybe they'll still come in i mean they still could do that in a lot of these in in places like colorado where the FBI could still show up and prosecute you, sure. the DEA, but they don't have the personnel really to do that. Right. So they just defer to the local laws. If conservatives had more guts, they would do that much more on guns, on health care, on a variety of issues where they find the federal government to be troublesome and illegitimate on a lot of laws that they're handing down. But so far, there doesn't seem to be much uh, courage from the right yeah. on those issues, whereas it just seems to be the left that's willing to do the sanctuary cities and the marijuana yeah. legalization and all that and then really go to the wall over it, whereas conservatives seem much more willing to just buckle under and take uh, um, take orders from Washington so long as somebody right. waves an American flag around or wears a tricorner <laughs> hat right. or something like that and yeah. talks about the Constitution. The reality, of course, is that if you're going to protect your rights, you need to really start looking at ways to separate yourself from Washington. Yeah, I think uh, a big part of this conversation too is is kind of a bottom up approach. It, our communities need to be strong. Our local politicians need to be strong and reflect who we are, um, all the way up to our our state governments. Because really, that's the only way that any of of this happens. I think is if the states. Uh, I mean, to to your point, I live in California. 
and during you know all the lockdowns and the rest of it, we're in Riverside County. Our sheriff is a very conservative, and he said, I'm not going to enforce any of this. So <laughs> do whatever you want. I'm not enforcing it. The state didn't enforce a lot of those things on people in the county. The federal government certainly didn't. And it was just exactly to your point is we have local representation that reflects the people that live here. And if we can start from the bottom up, I think a lot of this can change. Um, Ryan, thank you so much for this interesting conversation. There's a lot to think about here and a lot to uh, uh, certainly to process. Where can people follow you, get your book? And uh, we talk about the Mises Institute a lot, but um, um, even where can people go and well, they can articles. get it from our store um, at the Mises Institute, just M-I-S-E-S dot org. Just click on store there at the top. Or you can get it on Amazon uh, as well. Just put in Breaking Away. You might get that old 1970s DVD, um, <laughs> but you'll probably get my book. You'll figure so, out which one is the right one. Yeah. yeah, put in Breaking Away in the word secession and you'll probably get it right, <laughs> right away. Very good. Well, Ryan McMakin, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can talk again. Great. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. We were not made to live in isolation. Sadly, many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. A lot of guys end up drinking, a lot of guys end up losing hope. Someone will go to the VA and they'll try to get, you know, prescription medications to help with PTSD. You know, they'll get pills for anxiety, they'll get pills because they can't sleep, now they'll get pills for depression before they know it. they're taking 12 different medications. And when it's not working out, these guys lose hope, and that's why there's 23 guys a day committing suicide. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. As a result, we've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Everything they said just kept hitting me in the heart over and over and over again. It's like all the things that I didn't know that I needed to hear. And uh, I opened my heart to God that week, dude, and like... <laughs> I've been a different person ever since. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. We provide our programs and resources, including travel, at no cost to our warriors. I remember talking to a licensed uh, social worker who actually handed me a pamphlet to Mighty Oaks. So I went. I'm glad I did. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, these men and women are able to lead their families, their communities, and our nation. Our mission is to serve and restore our nation's warriors and families who have endured hardship through their service to America and to help them find new life purpose through hope in Christ. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org. I appreciate that conversation. Please go and uh, check out his book, Breaking Away, The Case for Secession, Radical Decentralization, and Small Polities. And as always, go to the Mises Institute website. Uh, Mises Institute, they write on so many things, but provide so many resources for uh, normal people, people like us, to understand the world that we live in. And uh, that's one of the big goals of this show is to give us the information we need to navigate this crazy world we are living in. So please go and check them out. If you are not yet subscribed to the podcast, make sure that you subscribe right now. So important that you are 
subscribed. Make sure you do that. And then go and share that content, this content out with folks in your world that need to hear these conversations. Check out our website or our uh, the YouTube channel uh, over on YouTube, of course. Look for The Situation Report. You can find us there. Subscribe, hit the notification bell, and uh, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for watching and or listening. We will talk to you next time. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.